From Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to one who asks you, and do not turn away from one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Wendy. That's great. Well, this is a second of our series on really the nature of relationships. Uh, We looked last week at Everything Belongs, and this week we're looking at Love Your Enemies. And... You know, this is one of those key readings in the New Testament. Key because it's universally ignored. (laughs) It's not that we don't know it's there. And we always know it's there, but we studiously ignore it and refuse to put it into practice. You know, Christian world leaders are very, you know, keen on stressing aspects of the Bible you know, making a point about family values or the workings of society. But when it comes to loving your enemies, we all just suddenly go deaf. Um, You know, you didn't really mean it. Or, you know, if you look at theologically, if you look at it, what he really meant was this. And uh, it's one of those hard teachings. And we know we can't really presume to be, you know, understand what he really meant. You know, however, you know, this really is a threat to the nation. And unless we step up and meet that threat, we will all be crushed. And of course, Jesus did mean it. It's absolutely central in his understanding of the way that the world works. That's what it shows. It's central to his understanding in the way that the world works. And, you know, that's really the key issue here. You know, how does the world work? And how are you supposed to respond in these situations? Our understanding is really pretty much an eye for an eye. That if there is an evil person, you should resist them. If someone slaps you on the cheek, will you slap them back? If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, well, then you sue them back for your outfit. If someone forces you to go a mile with them, you've got them for kidnapping. You know, if you have an enemy... They must be crushed and bombed out of existence. You know, that's just the way most of us think. And it's the way I think our politicians think. 
you know, non-violence has been around for some time. You know, Jesus here, when he said an eye for an eye, was quoting the Old Testament. You know, Gandhi famously said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And, you know, we've seen instances of non-violence sort of half kind of work over the years. You know, Gandhi really demonstrated it during his struggle for Indian independence, you know, fasting, you know, to get people to stop fighting. You know, there was that, that instance there and, you know, that wonderful sort of apocryphal thing that Nelson Mandela is supposed to have said, you know, when he was asked, do you want revenge? And he said, of course, I want revenge, but I want peace more. And South Africa is another example of where nonviolence can transform something. And in our hearts, we know that the way of nonviolence is the only way forward. However, when we're confronted with the reality of oppression of Nazi Germany or North Korea, you know, what do we do? That's the key issue here. And on a personal level, you know, you've got that old thing that everybody always says, you know, if you saw a family member being attacked, what would you do? Would you be nonviolent then? And you can see the whole thing is a minefield, which is why, you know, we tend to avoid it. For me, the place to start with this is the idea that we talk about a lot here, that we all do share the same consciousness. I think that's the place to start here. We are all part of the same conscious ground of being. That aspects of life, you know, that that part of life that holds everything together, that enables trees to be trees, pillars to be pillars, lecterns to be lecterns, that gives us life and that enables us to live. We share that. There is a fundamental ground of being that is the DNA of all existence, the spiritual DNA that's behind all things. You know, Jesus says, I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. I am in the Father, I am within that spiritual consciousness, you are in me, we exist in the same reality, and I am in you. There's a sense of a shared consciousness. And that's what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ or in the town, whatever you like to call it. That's what it means, is to share, we share that same consciousness. And in that case, if that's the case, if we are all of one consciousness, then the very act of fighting each other is insane. At the very least, not healthy, which is really what insane means, insanus, not healthy from the Latin. It's not healthy for us to fight each other. It's like your arm fighting your leg to get control of your body. It's like your arm thinking, well, I'm in control, and fighting your leg to get control of your body. We are of the same consciousness. It doesn't make any sense, really, for us to fight each other. We share that consciousness. We share that rich inheritance. So when we do violence to another part of that consciousness, you know, actually we're doing violence to ourselves. And we know that. You know, we know that in war. You know, we know we're doing violence to ourselves. And that wonderful passage from the Tao Te Ching. Whoever relies on the Tao in governing men does not try to force issues or defeat enemies by force of arms. 
Whoever relies on the Tao in governing men does not try to force issues or defeat enemies by force of arms. For every force, there is a counterforce. Violence, however well-intentioned, always rebounds on oneself. Violence, however well-intentioned, always rebounds on oneself. The master does his job, then stops. He understands that the universe is forever out of control and that trying to dominate events goes against the current of the Tao. Because he believes in himself, he doesn't try to convince others. Because he's content with himself, he doesn't need others' approval. Because he accepts himself, the whole world accepts him. Violence done to others is just violence done to ourselves. I mean, we can get these ideas intellectually, and we do know in our hearts the truth of them. But I think the key, you know, when you, when you get that, it doesn't really help looking at the actuality of the Nazis coming over the hill or the person attacking your family. But it does give a perspective on what is ultimately right action, even if we can't see how to put it into place yet. You, you know, it gives you a perspective of what is the right thing to do if we can't make it happen. So, you know, the idea that we all share that one consciousness. And the next thing to see is that it's important to get in line with that. In our own lives, to get in line with the fact we all share one conscious, to realize that there is a flow in life that we need to be aware of, because we're part of that flow. And so is that which is attacking us. You know, I love, the, I love these guru stories. Now, I've got a couple today, but first one. Lovely guru story of the guru. He was meditating in his little cell. He has a little cell and, and a drawing room, a little sitting room, and he was meditating in his little cell with the door shut. And robbers come into his, uh, his sitting room and they open the door and they ransack the whole place and they, they take everything and rush out. And the guru gets up from his meditation, comes outside and sees his whole bedroom and his whole drawing room ransacked and all they've left is one candlestick. So he picks up the brass candlestick and he rushes out the door and he rushes down the road to the robbers and he gets, he finds them and he gets them and he says to them, you left this behind. (laughs) And that's sort of, you know, the idea of of going with that flow. You know, that that, there is a flow in life. It's, It's owning the flow. And we do that in little ways. You know, we do, in our own lives, we can do that in little ways, you know, by not responding to an insult with an insult. You know, when someone's horrible to you, and they are, you know, often, there's someone like me anyway, <laughs> us, they are. Not responding with an insult with an insult, but giving space for healing and loving to take place that includes that insult. In that passage, it says, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist the evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If someone forces you to go the extra mile, you know, go the mile, then go two miles. It's about going with the flow of the universe and not resisting it. We talked before about it's about being actively passive. Just being there rather than passively active, which most of us are. Realizing that there is more going on that we can be aware of. That our little robbery, our little candlestick, there's more going on. The, t- the Tao Te Ching says, you know, can you remain unmoving? 
till right action arises by itself? Can you remain unmoving till right action arises by itself? And there's something that works with this. You know, I've only been attacked twice in my life physically. In both cases, I noticed that, you know, I just sort of folded up. I offered no resistance at all. And the attack stopped just by offering no resistance. Now, I'm not saying that we should become a punch bag to anyone who wants to do us harm. What I am saying is that there is a deeper and, and, and harder line that you can take if you can be responsible for what's going on. And it does take a high degree of responsibility. You've got to be responsible. Take responsibility for these actions. You've got to take a high degree of responsibility. And that, of course, is where, you know, it's where, you know, like in The Matrix, I don't know if you've seen The Matrix, where you can watch the action unfolding and take responsibility for what's going on at a deeper level. You know, you're really being asked to hold your world in your consciousness and take a step back and become the context and watch the content going on even observing yourself within that content. That is the action of taking responsibility, to take a step back and become the context, become the whole. You know, you're, in doing that, you are seeking first the kingdom of heaven and then seeing what's going on within it. And you represent that holding the context. I remember once, you know, I was working for a company, I was made redundant, and there's that negotiation that goes on when you made money, you know, how much you know, money you're going to get, you know, stuff like that. And I remember when I was talking about it, I've been with that company 14 years and I had, you know, fairly deep relationships. And, I, and my whole experience was to say, you know, you just give me what you think is right. And I noticed that as I said that, the amount of money started to go down that they were offering me. <laughs> but I just knew that was for me something deep, in there was the right thing to do, to say, look, you just give me what's right. And it was, it, the emphasis was there for, to become the contents and let them do what they wanted to do. And I got a bit. And, you know, it's, it saw me through the next period, you know. And it enabled me, actually, to go into the church. I mean, had I got the yacht and everything like that, I'd have probably not gone into the church. But, <laughs> you know, it did enable me to make that next move. And it's about moving with the flow. But, you know, it does take that great responsibility to do that. There's another guru story I like where the guru is med- he's always meditating in these stories. He's meditating and in, in, he's in his village and the bandits come in and they kill most of the people and they torch all the huts in the village. And eventually the bandit leader comes up with his sword and holds the sword to the guru's throat while he's meditating, the guru opens his eyes and the bandit says, do you realize that with one thrust I could run you through with my sword? And the guru looks up at him and says, do you realize that with one thrust I can have you run me through with that sword? It's taking responsibility for what is going to happen and say, yes, this is part of it. I can have you run me through with that sword. You know, he's taking responsibility for his possible death. And, you know, we've seen that with Jesus at Gethsemane. You know, he, once that kiss is given to him in, in Gethsemane, he takes responsibility for what is going to happen to him next. He's with Pilate, he's with the guards, he's crucified. He goes with it. 
he's actively passive. He, and he's not just a punch bag. He's taking responsibility for something wider that's happening. It's to act on this level that you have to be both conscious and responsible for what's going on, which is not for everyone. You can't expect everyone to do that. And then that takes us to the whole idea of, let's say, to enemies. Now, the word enemy comes from the Latin word uh, inimicus, which actually means in an amicus, not friend. An enemy is a not friend, in amicus, emi. That's where the word comes from. And a friend actually comes from the Latin word, you know, meaning loving, and the word free is in there as well. The word free is in there too. So, It comes from the Latin word priont, which means loving. Priont became friend, and it means to love and to be free. So the whole nature of, 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 uh, of a friend involves the idea of, of love, free love. That's what defines a friend, giving yourself for free. And an enemy is not free love. I'm not talking about the 1960s version of free love here. I'm talking about the eternal version of free love. It is, an enemy is not free love and not friend. And a, a friend is, is the giving of love. So the idea of loving your enemies is really the idea of reorganizing your enemies as friends. Transforming them from being not friends to friends. And that is the active thing to do. The Tao says, the master is available to all people and does not reject anyone. He is ready to use all situations and doesn't waste anything. This is called embodying the light. What is a good man but a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good man's job? Our enemies are a part of our consciousness. And as such, they're there to be transformed to be made into friends. That's, that's what they're there for. And in order to do that, you have to first have compassion on them rather than condemn them. That's really the first step, to have compassion. Last week I, I spoke about, you know, we have our enemies, we have our non-friends. And although they want to do us wrong, they only want to do this because of a greater wrong that has been done to them. There is a greater wrong that has been done to them that is actually have them wanting to do us wrong. That quote from Nelson Mandela again, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. You know, to turn someone to hate, to have someone wish ill of you, is really a sign that that person has been abused. Because the illusion that they want to do you, whatever it is that's driving them to want to do you ill, is as a result of something that's happened to them. There is a greater wrong that has been done to them that makes them think there is a reason to do you wrong. Now you might think, oh, this is intellectual, but really that is the case. It is, an, you know, it is, it is something that is wrong inside their heads or something has been done to them that actually makes that happen. And that is the place to start having compassion on one's enemies, to, to love them. 
to love them and to pray for those that persecute you, that they may be children of your, uh, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He, Jesus is talking about the perfect way. This is really, if you if you're coming down to it, you know the science of reality. Uh, you know, how it actually works. This is how it actually works. You know, how they, the transforming nature of what Jesus is telling us to be in line with that perfection and therefore model perfection and create wholeness in the world. So how do we square up to the Nazis coming over the hill? You know, and our family member being attacked, because that's still there with all this wonderful, marvellous, enlightened, you know, stuff. Well, the truth is that, you know, to carry out this command, you really have to be utterly and, and totally committed to that spiritual way. You've really got to have that commitment to it. Let's take the Nazis first. Well, actually, I think that ultimately the role of nonviolence in this situation would prevail. I don't want to go into all the details, but I think ultimately it would prevail. But, you know, it takes a whole country to get behind it. And it takes a huge shift in the consciousness of a nation to enable a politician to be able to disarm in that way. And it takes the willingness of the people of that nation to be prepared to die for that. And we're just not in that place. We're just not in that place in terms of the evolution, the way things are. Individuals can and do take a stand. But when it comes to it, the nature of the evolution of the human spirit is not in a place where as yet that can happen. In Star Trek it has. If you watch Star Trek, the Federation, you know, the, all the stuff, they've handled it on Earth. And it's all about the Klingons and they still have to have compassion on them. But, you know, they ha- they've handled the Earth. But it, we're not in that place, I don't think. You know, there is not the connection to enable an evolved mass attempt to communicate the efficacy of this approach. However, you know, we are getting there, I think. India and South Africa, both supposedly developing nations, have, have had their impact in terms of nonviolence. You know, Martin Luther King, you know, there is that understanding beginning to come through in our culture of the stupidity of violence. They've demonstrated the possibilities. And, but I think, you know, we're not in that place. Now, what about your family member being attacked? Because that, that's a key area as well. Well, I think it's one thing for us to be willing to consciously, you know, have be run through. It's one thing for us to be willing to take the risks that would lead to our death consciously. And I think, however, it's another to expect others to pay for our beliefs. You know, we may be committed to, to that non-violence, which is to say, run me through, because there is something greater at stake here. But not everyone makes that commitment to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Yeah, that person may not have made that commitment, and that's quite a deep decision to make. And if it's not been made, I think it's right to interfere and to save a person's life. You know, they're not in that place. You know, why should they die for your beliefs? You know, even Jesus, you know, interfered when he drove the money changers from the temple. You know, he made a weapon, a whip of cords. And so there's a precedent for that sort of intervention. 
There, there is a rightness in the position of loving your enemies, of turning the other cheek, of allowing the flow of life to break over you, even if it means your detriment or your demise. There is a fundamental rightness in that. But it's another thing to expect others to operate from that position if they have no idea of the reality from which it comes. And similarly, there has to be a high level of evolution for politicians to consciously open their populations to the dangers that others might inflict on them in order to uphold some spiritual principle or other. You know, having said that, we are beholden to common sense. You know, it is common sense not to inflame a difficult situation. It's common sense not to use violence when you don't have to. It's common sense to have an understanding of the nature of the ego and the nature of power so as to know what to do to diffuse a situation rather than exacerbate it. It's common sense. And, it, and it's, you know, we're bound to operate out of common sense. From our own perspective, our response to difficulty and to non-friends must be one, I think, that involves education and compassion. We are foremost, I think, as individuals, educators in the struggle to release people from the illusion of separation and the understanding of our shared consciousness. And this can't be achieved by mirroring the violence and hatred we see in front of us. That education can't come about by mirroring hatred, but must come from a place of compassion that attempts to create understanding. Education comes from that, the two Latin words, educare, educare, which means to draw, ducare out, e, to draw out. E, education is a drawing out. And we have to draw out that understanding that is latent within people. As Bede Griffiths says, the goal of each religion is the same. It is the absolute transcendent state, the one reality, the eternal truth, which cannot be expressed and cannot be conceived. That is not only the goal of all religion, but also it is the goal of all human existence. Whether they like it or not, all men and women are continually attracted by this transcendent truth. So it is there latent to be drawn out. We have to know that and present that truth in a way that can be understood. And I think that takes compassion and great sensitivity. I think it's what we're about here. How do you do that? Well, it is about being perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And it means listening to that voice, not the voice of your ego, but the voice that comes from love. And that takes patience, the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear, to remain unmoving till right action arises by itself. And to do that, I think, comes from a place of deep humility. Not thinking that you're right, but knowing that the universe is forever out of control and that trying to dominate events goes against the current of the Tao. Thank you, Nicholas. Um, I'm not used to performing in front of so many people. 
feeling a little bit intimidated here today, especially given the high quality of music that you usually hear at the chapel each Sunday. But when Nicholas gave his homily um, last week and announced that his message this week would be Love Your Enemies, I immediately thought of a song I'd recently heard um, at the Belly Up in, uh, by Steve Earle. This struck a real chord with me, um, and I felt called today to perform it for you in the hope that it would strike a chord with you, too. Steve Earle is an alt-country um, singer-songwriter of powerful songs. This song is an unusual profession of faith that we don't usually hear on the radio. Um, it's nominally written about the Middle East and the conflict in the Middle East, but it can be taken as a metaphor for any seemingly irreconcilable conflict, even or especially when we see today the conflict between right and left in our politically divided country. So. Please follow along the words in the handout, and if it feels right to you, you can uh, join, in and we, join in with me when I get to the choruses, each of which begins with, I believe. So you could try that out or just listen along. So.
dear to our hearts. It's no coincidence that this chapel is called the Prince of Peace. And the whole idea of peace is fundamental to who we are and what we're about here. And next week, we're going to look at the subject of forgiveness. Let's pray. We do pray for the peace in our world, for the leaders in our world, that they may have that sense of understanding and compassion, have that resort to common sense, that we may bring our world to a place of peace. Pray for all those involved in conflicts, in situations of violence, in prisons. Pray for a sense of your love in their hearts. Pray for those who are hungry. Pray particularly for all those in Texas suffering from Hurricane Harvey. We just pray that all those people losing their homes, losing their loved ones, lost, there may be some comfort provided by all those who are there to help. Pray for those in our community that we know are suffering at the moment, particularly praying for the families of Carlin Brightwell and Ryan Marcel, who died on Capitol Peak last week. Also the family of Jack Gasky, who died last week as well. Pray for Sharon Wells, for Anne Lindley, for Joan Valentine, for Lee Bouguet, for Soleil, for Tegan Sullivan, Anne Hodges, Barbara Orcutt, Molly McCarthy, Coman, Pat Smith, Will Welsh, and Patricia Hill. We pray for healing in those people, healing in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.